Warning, listening to this audio may cause side effects. Now, legally, we must state that we don't actually know why side effects are caused when you listen to this audio, but wouldn't that be pretty scary if you were taking a medication and you didn't know why you were getting some of the side effects? My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I am trying my absolute best over here to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph. And when I should be working on my work, but I'm not, I like to have conversations with other graduate students in the STEM fields to talk about what they are researching. And a possible side effect of that is I learn a whole lot of something about something I had absolutely no idea about. In this case, we are going to be talking with Toby Lee, who studies the side effects of a certain medication and its linkage with the increased susceptibility to a certain virus. We will be talking about a specific birth control that has been linked to an increased infection rate of HIV. But let's have Toby tease you with a little bit of audio from later in the episode. In the context of women that use this particular drug, DMPA, their increased risk is not because their immune system is weaker, but rather we believe that their immune system is more active. A more active immune system causing more susceptibility to a virus seems a little counterintuitive. I guess the only way you're going to be able to understand that is if you listen to this entire episode. And keep in mind while you're listening, we're both graduate students. We are somewhere in the beginning of our careers and we don't know absolutely everything, which is why you are listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hey Toby, how you doing today? I'm great, how are you? Hi, I'm doing all right over here. Could you uh, give us like your educational history? Sure, sure, sure. So I did my undergrad at Western University. I did an honor specialization in microbiology and immunology. Uh, the program is medical science. After I graduated, I then went to the University of Manitoba in Manitoba to do a master's in medical microbiology and infectious diseases. I know it's a really long name. And then I recently transitioned to a PhD. At the same place? At the same place, yep. Okay, so first of all, what's it like in Manitoba? Explain it to us Guelphites. Um, well, let, let me put it this way. When I first got there and people told me it gets co as cold as negative 40, I, I could not understand it. But like when the day came when negative 40 hit, I tell you not, my it was so cold that my, my heater broke. My heater broke and I started to wrap myself with multiple layers of clothes. I think I like wore at least like eight layers of clothes and I was still cold. That's that's really intense. Now you ready for this segue? I'm about to, I'm about to segue this. Are you ready? Sure, sure. Go ahead. When I think of negative forty degrees Celsius, I think about virus storage. <laughs> what is a great segue for what you study? Could you give us a brief synopsis? Sure. That wasn't that good. Well, could you give us a brief synopsis of what you study? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, I study HIV, but to be more specific, uh, there's this really common birth control drug that is commonly used in low middle income countries. It's The long name is uh, Depo-Medroxyprogesterone Acetate, or DMPA for short. It's a great birth control drug. Uh, it's pretty cheap, it's affordable, it's accessible. Now here's the problem. In areas that commonly use this birth control, we see higher rates of HIV infection. And we think for some unclear reasons that this drug is linked with increased HIV risk. So. My thesis comes into the stage and we're trying to understand how it does that. And to do that, what I'm doing is I'm looking at different immune cells and looking at how these immune cells are different between women that use this birth control drug compared to women that don't use it. 
All right, so let's back up a little bit because that, that there was a lot going on in there. There, there's a lot going on in there. So, all right, first of all, uh, HIV, the virus, correct? Because yeah, I don't know these things. So, HIV, the virus, that is a sexually transmitted disease. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, it could also be transmitted through blood and other bodily fluids, but for the most part, when we think about HIV, we're thinking sexually transmitted. Bingo, that's right. So, uh, birth control, I understand that it has something to do with the reproductive system, but that's not sexually transmitted. Mm -hmm. it, that's right. But for some reason, it's able to make you more susceptible to this infection. Uh, based on, you know, some studies already, we see that women who use this birth control drug, their uh, vaginal tract or, or, or their vaginal epithelium, it's somehow thinner compared to women that are not using it. So one of the speculations is that perhaps women who use this particular birth control drug, their immune barrier is reduced in function. And because it's reduced in function, maybe they're at higher risk to HIV infection. So it would be ridiculously wrong to say that taking this birth control drug could give you HIV. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's why it's the key word is that it increases risk. It doesn't cause the infection, but rather it increases one's risk. And if you live in certain areas where you know HIV prevalence is high, that risk is really something that we should really you know take into consideration. All right, let's make an analogy. We love analogies. Big fan of it. Increasing your risk. Would you say this is something along the lines of uh, going out in the winter? you know, without wearing any clothing or being in your negative 40 degree apartment uh, in Manitoba without any clothing that increases your risk for getting the cold. Is it akin to that or do I need to try again with my analogies? Oh, that's a, I think that's a hard one. I, to be honest with you, the risk, we don't understand quite yet what is the actual value, but there are researchers saying that it could increase one's risk for HIV infection by 30 to 50%. All right. Okay. You're ready for this? I got analogy part two. I feel, I'm feeling this one. All right. Here's an analogy. Uh, dying in a car accident. If you, <laughs> I told you, I've got, I got analogies for days. Uh, <laughs> dying in a car accident. If you were wearing a seatbelt, you are less at risk for dying. Is this, am I, am I still shooting in the dark? I like that. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That's a good one. <laughs> we're a little bit closer. I'm not, it wasn't great, but <laughs> I'm, I'm making analogies on the fly over here. It's a good analogy. I'll take that one. <laughs> All right, so we talk about reducing the risk of getting something. So ultimately, uh, we're trying our best to give us the best possibilities to not get something like HIV. But then you come across this drug, which has a lot of other benefits. It is, it's a birth control, right? So it has a lot of benefits. But, uh-oh, this drug is potentially uh, increasing your risk for getting HIV. So what do we do at that point? Well, there's there's a lot we could do. First of all, let's figure out why there is such a thing. Why is it increasing one person's risk for HIV? Why? That's the first part. The second part is that with this knowledge, the next thing that we should do is trying to develop more safer contraceptives or birth control drugs such that, you know, women have access to reproductive health without putting their, you know, own sexual health at risk. So, you know, the, the, we, we're not saying at this point, like, stop taking this drug. This is, this is terrible. It's not like one of those, like, caution, don't do this drug. The drug is still approved for use, and it still does good things, but there is a side effect. 
Correct. And, and that's something that is for each individual to decide on you know the trade-offs and of course on their their location um, in Canada if you're using this particular birth control drug it's not a problem quite because we don't have much of an HIV problem here as we would in you know sub-saharan Africa so you know there's a lot more to consider than just seeing that a drug is linked with an infection Ah, so it's going to matter in which region you're in and the prevalency of this specific virus towards where you are. That's correct, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> we, we have a drug. It does a good thing, and it might potentially do a bad thing, but here's the big issue. It's not just like, okay, we found that this is linked to that. You have no idea why this drug is doing this. That's correct, yeah. And it's, it's complicated because, I mean... It's it's a it's a birth control drug. It's it yeah, it alters your hormones, and the the issue is that there's also other studies that have shown that you know this drug is totally safe. So now here you have in this HIV field where there's two parties. One party, one side is saying you know we see a, we see an increased risk in HIV, and the other side is like no, it's safe. So now there's this you know race to figure out how you know how does it do that, and if it does, how can we prevent it in other future birth control drugs. Now, I think this is an important part whenever we are talking pharmaceutical drugs. Because, like, you know, big controversy issues here. You're not paid by this drug manufacturer to say, like, oh, no, no, it doesn't cause HIV. Like, shh, nothing happens. No, no, absolutely not. Because all of our research are are government-funded. And to be honest with you, we, we go into this research with no set of agenda, just to understand, you know, what are the mechanisms. And then if there are no mechanisms that are linked with the increased HIV risk, then there's not. But we're trying to understand if there is. Yeah, so it's more of a you're trying to figure out if something is happening, less so much of a proving situation. That's correct, yeah. All right, so let's, uh, how do we do it? How, how, in the, how, how in the world are you doing this in Manitoba when you have so far told me that it is not an issue in Canada? So uh, we at the University of Manitoba, we have a collaboration with uh, communities and researchers in Kenya. And this collaboration has been going on for over 40 years now. And given this collaboration, we're able to, you know, assess women who use this drug in Kenya. Um, the reason why a lot of people use this is because this drug is very affordable, accessible, and it's very, you know, it's effective. And because these women are using it, and they're using it in, in an area where there is rather a high prevalence of HIV, we can then, you know, then look at how this drug is increasing one person's risk for HIV infection. And in my particular thesis, what I'm doing is that we're collecting blood from women who use this drug, and then collecting blood from women who don't use this drug. And then what we're doing is that we're now piecing out the different immune cells and trying to see how this particular drug changes these immune cells. How does, how does it change the, the way they function? How does it change the way they move? And, and more, more to that. All right, so now we're going into the field of immunology. That's a lot of letters in that word. It's something that I don't understand, not even a little bit. Like, I am on the bottom of the spectrum of understanding immunology. Could you, could you give us just the, the most brief synopsis of why immunology is an important thing to look at? 
when I think of immunology, I think of the Avengers, you know, the protectors of the planet, the protectors of the universe. Your immune system is very much like the Avengers. They are in your body, circulating in your blood, and they are there to protect you against from parasites, bacteria, viruses, COVID-19, <coughs> cough, cough. <laughs> And, you know, they, they're important. They, they help you defend against all of these potential enemies that could kill you. So, all right, we can study these things. These are itty-bitty little cells. You can't see them with your eyeballs. They're, they're so small, you can't see them with your eyeballs. You need to use special equipment to see them. But you can tell different things about these guys by running different tests? Absolutely. Um, a very common uh, technique for studying immune cells is a, a particular technique called flow cytometry. And to be brief about it, what you do with flow cytometry is you take you know, blood cells and you run it through a machine. And when you run it through this machine, What's doing is that it's scanning for particular markers or receptors or proteins on the cell. And by looking at the different proteins on the cell, you can tell A, what cells they are, and two, you know, what is the functional status of these cells. And by characterizing or by describing these cells, you can understand how are they different between people, populations, communities, and more. So when you say what's different between, let's say we're taking the group of the people who take the drug and the people who don't take the drug. When you say differences, are we talking about the amount of protein, the kinds of protein, a little A, little B? Yeah, I'm talking about the amount. I'm talking about the differences. And, you know, I'm talking, when I say protein, I'm, I'm really specifying, you know, receptors. You know, most receptors are proteins. And by characterizing what are these receptors on the cell, you can understand whether they're functioning properly or not. Receptors are on cells for a reason. Well, what are the reasons? Well, to communicate with other cells, to talk with other cells, as well as to function it and to do things. So by measuring these receptors, we can tell what are these cells doing or how, how well are they doing their job. Okay, so, so these cells have a job. They work 9 to 5, or, or are they more like a 24-7 kind of situation? Definitely 24-7. Avengers don't take time off. <laughs> Avengers don't take time off. All right, immunology, the science that never sleeps, everyone. Uh, so, so they have these jobs, and their jobs, for the most part, if I'm to understand my basic rudimentary understanding of immunology, is to kill invaders and re repair your... Your current, I don't know. I, I, you, you tell me, what is the job of an immune cell? I know there's multiple kinds. Give me a general. Well, immune cells, man, they have a lot of functions. But the one that I'm particularly interested in is called a natural killer cell. They're kind of like the ninjas of the immune system. They're able to, you know, detect and kill cancer cells as well as cells that have been infected by viruses or bacteria, COVID-19. <laughs> and you know, what the job of immune cell is, is to essentially detect an unhealthy cell and kill it, or to mount a war against an infection. But yeah, that, that's really their role is to fight against infections, to kill an infection, to kill a bacteria, to kill an infected cell, and yeah. 
So if you had a weakened immune system in these patients that potentially are having more susceptibility to HIV, you're saying they, they have less warriors against HIV or maybe the warriors are not trained against HIV. What, uh, what's the difference? Well, that's interesting. So in the context of women that use this particular drug, DMPA, their increased risk is not because their immune system is weaker. But rather, we believe that their immune system is more active. Okay. All right. Fine. I give up. <laughs> All right. So back up. <laughs> these these women who have a higher HIV risk have a more active immune response. Yeah. It's it's a bit confusing and it's a bit hard to explain. But I'll, I'll try my best. So essentially, when you're looking at immune or when you're looking at risk for HIV infection, there are generally, I could say, two ways. Either you have a weaker immune system, that means your avengers are, are not active, they're not there to protect you, which is quite intuitive. But the other way of getting, another way of increasing your risk is when your immune system is very active. So, I want you to imagine for a second, you are in the vaginal tract, the vaginal epithelium, okay? And as you already know, HIV is transmitted, you know, through uh, sexual intercourse, unprotected sexual intercourse. Now, the thing that everyone has to note is that HIV infections, HIV in particular, loves to infect a type of immune cell called CD4 T cells, or T cells for short. When your immune system is activated or active, what does that really mean? Well, it means that they're all pooled together and they're ready to attack, right? So. In an, in an individual who is highly active with their immune system, if their immune system is activated, well, all these T cells are pooling into the vaginal tract and ready to attack anything that invades it. That's great. Now, here's the problem. Now we have a pool, a group of T cells that HIV loves to infect. So once HIV does get into the vaginal tract, wow, is it so much easier to infect T cells now because they're all there. Right, so it's kind of a good. It's a good thing that your immune system is working. But when your immune system is so active, such that now you have a pool and a group of T cells just at one particular location, it becomes a liability. So this it seems straight up counterintuitive. Right, correct. But if I were to make another analogy, <laughs> all right. See, I'm all, I'm all about analogies yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, it, if you had an army and your entire army was in one location versus having a lot of smaller armies in different locations? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. The, the fact that T-cells are pooling into the valgin tract doesn't really matter where it doesn't, doesn't really affect the T-cells the at the other locations. The, the most important detail here is that we have a group of T-cells all localized, all confined to one particular space. It's like a basket of eggs. Mm. All the eggs you're putting into one basket and the HIV comes in, oh my gosh, a basket of eggs. It's so much easier to infect now. Okay, so do we suggest that these T-cells do a little social distancing? I agree, that would be great. <laughs> and that's an, that, that's an interesting thing to say because um, there's this interesting concept that was discovered at the University of Manitoba, and it's called immune quiescence. Now, before I explain what that is, I have, 
have to bring you back about 40 years ago when you know, researchers at the University of Manitoba discovered a very unique population in Kenya. Uh, in scientific terms, they're called HIV-exposed seronegatives, or HESNs. But in more layman terms, they are a group of unique people that are exposed to HIV, but for some reason, they don't get infected. Compared to, you know, an average Joe like me, if I was exposed to HIV, I'd probably get infected. But for some reason, this particular community in Kenya, though exposed, do not get infected. And then, of course, after, you know, years of research and studying this community, we discovered that contrary to, you know, an average Joe or, you know, someone on the streets, their immune system was relatively less active or less hyperactive. And when you look at the immune cells in their vaginal tract, there's less T cells around. So when, you know, when they have, you know, perhaps unprotected sex, HIV comes in, they somehow don't get infected. So, you know, the research, researchers at the University of Manitoba coined this concept of immune quiescence, where your immune system is functional, although it is functional and perfectly fine, it is somehow less active compared to the average person, such that when a person does encounter HIV, they don't get infected, but they can still generate a defense response. All right, so this kind of flips us on the head with all things that I think we commonly understand about immunology. And these things are now linking up in our conversation. So people with a higher immune response are more susceptible, which is usually the opposite of what most people think about, right? Uh, and people with a smaller immune response are actually more protected against this, uh, the infection from this specific virus. I mean, the best way to character, best way to explain it is on average day, you want your immune system to lay low until it's needed. People who are at higher risk for HIV infection, you know, a population of them, their immune systems are always active. And, you know, you would think that's a good thing to always be active, but sometimes by having your immune system be so active that when HIV comes to the scene, it's so much easier to infect. And the concept of immune quiescence is describing people that for some reason their immune system is functional and working but on an average day it's laying low so in an area in which hiv transmission is high it would be beneficial to be uh, quiescent correct and that's what my lab is trying to do at this moment is trying to somehow induce or try to create that quiescence and I believe a few years ago we got some funding to do a project where we administer, uh, where we get, you know, populations to self-administer uh, baby dose aspirin. Don't ask me more details because I don't know much about this. Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a project that uh, my, my colleagues are, are doing in the lab. But we're trying to use baby aspirin to induce immune quiescence, to mimic that phenomenon of less active but functional immune response so that you know we can reduce the risk of HIV infection. Of course, there are drugs already available for preventing HIV, but of course, bringing more tools to the table does not hurt. And of course, you know, bringing drugs like aspirin, which is so accessible and so affordable, does not hurt. 
Right, because there's a major barrier in a lot of the, the more recent anti, or not anti, uh, HIV protecting drugs. Um, they're quite expensive, but they're only very recently available on the market. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of challenges with um, HIV prevention drugs, you know, which includes, you know, the cost of it, as well as, as the stigma of using HIV prevention drugs. So, you know, the, the push for, the push to create more HIV prevention drugs is to provide, you know, communities with more options. And more options means we have a slightly more robust system of uh, defending us against this virus. That's correct. <laughs> All right, so, so you can find a way to sort of generate this phenomena that you've seen in nature, this quiescent phenomena. You're trying to find ways in order to create this quiescence? This, yeah, absolutely. All right, okay, so, so now let's, let's open up big picture, big picture situation. You, you got this little lab in Manitoba. It's negative 40 degrees Celsius. You're wearing, I'm assuming, like eight pairs of socks. Uh, average day, right? That's Manitoba for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we look at what you're doing. And obviously what you're doing is important. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, gosh, why are we funding this? But if we're to look big picture, what do we hope to be able to do with the research that you are doing today? Big picture. To be honest with you, the, the first thing that came to mind is to, to help communities around the world. That's, that's the, really the big picture, to help other people and to take our research and to, you know, translate it into perhaps policy, to translate it to, you know, different technologies, perhaps help industries, you know, create safer birth control drugs for women around the world. You know, I, I truly believe that no one should have to use birth control and, and worry that it might increase the HIV risk. That's just not right. Um, but yeah, the big picture is to help people. And, and how we do that, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure because we're still trying to understand how it does that, how it does increase HIV risk, or if it does at all. And based on what we find, you know, we'll think about that then. All right, so we need to work on fundamental building blocks. We are, we're not ready to make big policy changes. We are not designing drugs today. You are at the, the very beginning, no, maybe not the very beginning, but you're, you're somewhere in still the early stages of being like, all right, what's different between people who take this drug and people who don't take this drug? Wow. I wouldn't say the first. There are a lot of research going into this as well. And, and a lot of people have argued that, yes, it does increase your HIV risk. But the same token, there are also researchers that have said, no, they do not. And, you know, I think I'm a bit biased, but, you know, there are a fair amount of studies that says yes. And for me, I guess my role is to try to determine, the, you know, try to determine for myself, does it or does it not? Okay. So we are here. I finished my coffee like a half hour ago. You're still working on yours. Uh, <laughs> I have an issue with coffee. Uh, but I, I, I'm sitting here. We had this wonderful conversation. But I would love it if you could just sum up everything in a couple sentences. What do you got for me? One of the most commonly used birth control drugs is unfortunately linked with increased HIV risk. Women that use this drug are unfortunately linked to increased risk for HIV infection. And we still don't know how, and we still don't know if that's 100% true. My research is trying to understand exactly that. 
All right. Well, Toby, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, it was a real pleasure to learn something about immune systems that I had absolutely no understanding of, which in all fairness, I have no understanding of anything about immune systems. So you clarified a lot for me. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> all right. I've had my coffee and Toby has to fly back to Manitoba. So we are closing up on today's episode in which we talked with Toby Lee all about the increased susceptibility of the HIV virus infecting a person that takes a specific birth control. We don't know exactly why just yet, but that's why people like Toby are working so hard to figure it out. Just like with every other episode of We Know Some Stuff, we like to include a fact check, just to make sure that we dotted our I's, crossed our T's, and some other third euphemism for making sure that we did things right. So Toby and I reviewed this episode, and we didn't find anything that needed outright directly correcting. That is not to say that nothing got cut from the final recording of this episode. Because when talking scientifically, it's quite difficult to be perfect. And we're certainly not experts, which is why you just listened to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.